You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. This is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to late 30 a.m. Only double. Good morning, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. Uh, You're joined here by me, Genevieve, I've got Evie and Carnegie in the studio and we're joined by Fung on Zoom. (laughs) This is the first time we're doing this, so... It's very exciting. Hello, everyone. How? Good morning. Morning. Um, I also just forgot to say the date. It's the 21st of September, if no one's um, quite gotten there yet this morning. <laughs> Mentally, I don't think I really am. Yeah. <laughs> I think we've regressed back to winter. It is freezing outside it this morning. It is freezing. This whole week, yesterday was like blizzardy. Yeah, hailing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I was just watching, I, 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 like, especially like when the weather kept on changing, I opened up the radar just to watch as like the big like storm centres were like crossing over Melbourne and it just kept on turning orange and then clearing up and then going back again. It was just really bizarre. It was like pure Melbourne weather. It was great. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, how has everyone's weeks been? How's everyone been holding up? My weekend actually was really nice because I got to have a picnic. Yay! <laughs> Despite yes. the bad weather, we we had a great time. That's yeah. good. That was exciting. I also did the same, like caught up with one. <laughs> but yeah, the weather really put a spanner in the works. I feel like there was a lot of committed people, though, that were just like... A lot, yeah. Really battling it out. Yeah, full yeah. respect to that. Yeah. I've still got my second shot to go, which I'm getting this week. So after that, then I will be formally able to picnic with the rest of you. Um, But yeah, so it it was nice to actually have a roadmap this week and just an idea of when things will be opening up again. I know it's slow, but it still feels, it feels so much better actually having a deadline there as well. Like definitely. I think when it's so open-ended, it's hard to kind of uh, know what to mentally prepare for. Yeah, I yeah. think having some sort of date, even though it's quite a while. <laughs> quite a while. Um, I, I've got to admit, I I did sort of I in, for the last few months, I've sort of in my head been mentally preparing for the worst, just so it'd be a pleasant surprise yeah. if I got any better. So I think that's a very Melbourne thing to do. <laughs> yeah. I, I've booked an October hairdressers appointment for like rebooked it for the third time. So fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Mm. Yeah. Um, I was also just saying this morning that uh, I have a housemate that's from the Sunshine Coast, moved down for uni, but obviously we've been in lockdown and has never really felt the full Melbourne weather force yet and also just lockdown combined. And (laughs) I feel like everyone had been like, oh, yes, Melbourne's very, you know, ambivalent, the weather, blah, 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 and just has been smacked in the face, just (laughs) like... Have you this. told Have you told them the thing of like if they go outside they need like a hat, mm-hmm. a cardigan, like three different kinds of clothing to just prepare? Yeah, well I don't think they be- 
like believed us um, <laughs> at first. We we're like, no, 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 no. Right. spring. Like, oh. it's hard to explain the extent of what goes on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it sounds insane. It does. <laughs> I, I was very silly, and I packed away some of my winter things, and then completely got owned by this weekend. So yeah, <laughs> rookie era. <laughs> um, Fung, how has your week been? Can you hear us? Yeah, I can. Okay, um, <laughs> I'm just like sitting here with my cup of coffee, enjoying <laughs> enjoying the chat. Um, I was going to say in terms of the weather, like yesterday especially, um, it was it was more just like me waiting with my dog for the opportune moment to take for a walk. <laughs> and it was constantly like looking outside being like, okay, you've got like five minutes of sun maybe, dash mm-hmm. out, and of course – in the middle of the dog park, it started hailing and raining. And no, I was like, no. okay, back in. It's always just like ready to go, like a moment of sun, a moment of, you know, where the wind and the rain has stopped and then you're like out of there yeah. ASAP. Very Melbourne also to rain while it's sunny. Is oh, my God. <laughs> confusing. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. We should get stuck into what's coming up on the show this morning um Fung you did an interview this week do you want to talk about that yeah so last week I caught up with Winetta Jewess who is the co-chair of the National Family Violence Prevention and Legal Services Forum and uh, she went with met with me to speak about the recent Women's Safety Summit the uh, National Safety Plan and the need for like a dedicated safety plan that's written for and by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. Awesome. Sounds very, very exciting. And I've got an interview uh, with Dr. Julie Hennigan, who is a researcher specialising in women's health, specifically about um, some new legislation that's come out in some states about menstrual health. Um, she co-wrote an, or, uh, an article uh, that talks about exactly what menstrual health is, exactly what this new legislation means and exactly what more uh, we can do. And, uh, and then I will be catching up with um, the hosts of a new podcast called Being Biracial, um, Kate and Maria, um, and they will be telling us about how the podcast came about and their experiences as biracial women. And last of all, I'll be catching up with Sally Goldner of the fabulous Out of the Pen, who will be chatting with us about Stand By Us, which is a conference um, supporting um, bisexual people for Bi Visibility Day and also Bisexual Awareness Week. So that'll be great. Awesome. Well, we'll be right back with the news headlines. You're listening to 3CR. Possum Portraits is a non-profit bereavement care service supporting parents who have lost a baby to miscarriage, stillbirth and neonatal death. We provide families with hand-drawn, commemorative keepsake portraits of their baby free of charge. In support of our mission, we are hosting a community fundraising raffle. The prize draw will be held on November 6th. Prizes include a $300 Gorman online shop voucher, hampers, term memberships for kids' music and activity classes, and much more. To buy your raffle tickets, head to possumportraits.com.au forward slash events and win some great prizes while supporting an important cause. Possum Portraits is a 3CR supporter. Um, 
Um, so with news headlines, um, some good news this week. Uh, religious schools finally have uh, come under a, I mean, I guess they've been, people have been criticizing this for some time now, um, but they finally uh, are being held to account for not being able to fire LGBTIQ plus staff, um, which unfortunately has been quite commonplace um, up until now. Um, religious schools have always had an exemption and a level of freedom to, I guess, discriminate against um, people from the LGBT community, um, which has, of course, been quite unacceptable. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and so finally, um, yeah, last week it was decided that this is no longer an option. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, is that just in Victoria? Just in Victoria. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And this comes uh, in light of just recent examples that were um, catalogued in the age um, of uh, LGBTQI LGBTIQ staff um, being fired for being gay. Um, you know, this is not something that's an archaic thing that happens. It is happening in the present time. So it's really important that we support these staff and um, just it's incredible that we allow this kind of discrimination to happen mm. in this day and age. So, yeah. uh, of course, um, the Christian lobby um, have come out and said that, you know, th- that they can't believe that... Uh, once again that it seems the people of faith in Victoria are being told what they can and can't believe. But the point is is that they can and can't believe whatever they want. The point is that they can't fire people for believing whatever they want and also for loving whoever they they want. So, you know, it shouldn't come into the sphere of employment. Yeah, and I mean the reforms to the um, Equal Opportunity Act, which will be introduced I think later this year, um, will just make it unlawful for religious bodies and schools to discriminate against an employee because of their sexual orientation, gender identity, marital status, or other protected attribute. So it's actually a far cry from telling anyone what to believe. It's literally just, you know, let's not discriminate against a whole group of people having a job. Yeah, for, yeah definitely. It's an interesting um, argument. I think it's kind of seeping into many facets of uh, public life with um, where religion meets, I guess, just fairness. And mm. um, especially I feel like Christianity has more of, uh, I guess, more control than other religions in Australia. So it's nice to see that they have, <laughs> I guess, Some accountability. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and also, like, these, these are the same organisations who are opposed to um, the legislation early this year about uh criminalizing gay conversion practices so it's and this using the same arguments of freedom of religion yeah. um again these are things that we have to strongly stand up for and say mm-hmm. that it's and it's not even about like you know belief of faith it is just protecting people and making sure that you know that these kind of practices aren't used against them definitely um, also this week uh the afghanistan national women's football team um actually managed to flee across the border into Pakistan um, and the players entered through the northwestern Tokum border holding valid travel documents and Pakistan has welcomed them in and has um, said that they will receive protection given the Taliban. It's interesting. Mm. Yeah. From Pakistan, I know Pakistan's very ambivalent mm. uh, when it comes to Afghanistan, and I know that they have ties with the Taliban. It's an interesting... I mean, it's good, definitely, yeah. I wonder if it's anything to do with their prime minister being 
Next cricket captain. True. <laughs> sport connection. Yeah. 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 It, it, it is interesting. Like, or, like it's always sport that does seem mm-hmm. to have that kind of bridging effect. Mm. But, yeah, it's good to know that they're safe. Yeah, yeah. it's positive, I also think, because um, Pakistan, I think, will play a very crucial role in uh, diplomacy when it comes to Afghanistan now. And I think a lot of states... Um, should talk with Pakistan because they do have such strong ties with the Taliban specifically, but Afghanistan. So it's good to see this move um, a positive uh, in the face of, I guess, so much hardship as well. Um, And yesterday um, there was a clash outside CFMEU headquarters. Uh, Purportedly it it was supposed to – well, it was portrayed as a union protest – um, against uh, having compulsory vaccination in the construction industry. However, uh, the CFMEU and the Australian Council of Trade Unions has come out very strongly opposed to the um, the demonstration, uh, noting that there were many people who were identified at previous anti-lockdown protests and also some known neo-Nazis. So it does seem that quite a bit of the display has been co-opted uh, by extremists. Um, unfortunately, um, as a response to this action and general discontent in the construction industry, um, the Andrews government has announced that it's going to be shut down for two weeks after clashes outside. Um, it's important to note that the construction industry has still been working throughout the pandemic um, and with appropriate protocols in place. Um, but yeah. yeah, it's really unfortunate that you know, a, an industry that does like, you know, have effective protest and effective unionization has unfortunately been co-opted by these bad faith actors. Yeah, definitely. I think it's an important point to not um, taint, maybe I'm just sticking up for my partner, <laughs> <laughs> to not taint the entire construction industry. Um, but yeah, you're right. They have been very um, marginally, marginally affected affected just when it comes to how they do their work Mm. um i think a lot of other industries have had to very much reshape how they think about work and um do their work but construction just because you know economy 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 uh, has been largely um left to kind of carry on and um yeah it was kind of quite a shock even when they took away the lunch rooms and not having to not being able to have tea rooms um, and just the uproar about that. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I love that protest. I, just, <laughs> yeah. I, I was saying before that I just really enjoyed the, the like, I, I think a lot of workers who even aren't in construction would have to sort of admire the idea of like, you know, even like the small things are taken away from you. That's how it starts. Yeah. So you may as well be petty about it and want it back and just act accordingly. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> just like just peacefully yeah. drinking your tea out, yeah. out on the street. Like, so creative. Just, yeah. Why not? Oh, I can't have it um, in my tea room. So I'll just have it on the street on this tram track. So yeah. I'll just be disruptive. <laughs> yeah. And look, it's, it's not to say like th- there's anti-vaxxer elements, unfortunately in every industry, I think it's unfair to like single out um, construction being any particular hotbed of it, regardless of yesterday's protest or not. Um, and I think like it's, it, it, for me at least, I don't know if anyone feels similarly, but like the idea of a vaccine is something that like needs solidarity in itself. Like it means that you want to protect other people, you want to support other people. Um, and I know it's like a particularly like low ebb of people trusting 
like other people and the government and things like that. But yeah. vaccines help other people. Yeah. It's like I want to protect myself and I want to lessen harm to others. Um, and I think it's really important for the union movement as well to like maybe put that forward to say that, you know, solidarity with your co-workers and your mates is yeah. getting that done. And even yeah. if it's um, concentrating even more on – the fact that this is the way out of yeah. being in lockdown. Yeah, This is absolutely. the only way out and this is how other people can go to work and other people can get their jobs back and maybe have a think about uh, who else hasn't been able to work for the last few months mm. when um, a lot of other people have been able to go to work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I'm going to go to a quick announcement, but we'll be right back with a track after this. You're listening to 3CR. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protest this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. If you're a renter experiencing hardship due to the pandemic, you can check now to see if you're eligible to apply for the Victorian Government's new one-off rental relief grant worth up to $1,500. To help you, Tenants Victoria have put together an eligibility checklist. This will make it easier for you to assess whether you're eligible to apply for the grant, which is paid as a contribution towards rent. There are some steps involved to qualify for the grant. See the checklist for more information and visit the Tenants Victoria website for further details on how to apply. Go to tenantsvic.org.au and search for Rent Relief Grants. Tenants Victoria is a 3CR supporter. So in a media release published on the Department of Health website last week, it was announced that there would be a rapid rollout of the Moderna vaccine to participating pharmacies commencing from the week of 20th September, so yesterday, with more than 3,600 community pharmacies able to administer the Moderna vaccine by the end of the month across the country. This includes more than 700 in Victoria. To celebrate the Moderna rollout, We'd like to play you a Dolly Parton song to start the show. Dolly Parton donated $1 million to coronavirus vaccine research, which supported the development of the Moderna vaccine. So here is her classic song, 9 to 5. out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen Pour myself a cup of ambition And yawn and stretch and try to come to life Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping Out on the streets the traffic starts jumping With folks like me on the job 
shatter You're just a step on the boss man's ladder But you got dreams he'll never take away In the same boat with a lot of your friends Waiting for the day your ship will come in And the tide's gonna turn and it's all gonna roll your way Playing in the background there is uh, Dolly Parton's 9 to 5, and I think that was such um, a great representation of exactly what Dolly has done. I didn't even I didn't even know that that happened, so thanks, Fung. Thanks, Dolly. Thanks, Dolly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, all right, what's coming up next? Um, Fung, your interview. Yes, yeah, so... Uh, Winetta Jewis is the co-chair of the National Family Violence Prevention and Legal Services Forum, and she met with me last week to speak about the recent women's, uh, the recent National Women's Summit, and the need for a dedicated national safety plan for and by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. I won't say much more because Winetta begins our discussion by introducing herself and telling us about her background. I will preface that our interview mentions family violence and sexual assault. So if this conversation is too distressing for you, please uh, feel free to join us again in 15 minutes. So welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Winetta. Could you please start by introducing yourself and telling us more about the work that you do? Yes. Hi, as you mentioned, my name is Winetta Jewis. I'm a Torres Strait Islander woman and I have family connections from Boigu Island and also Horn Island in the Torres Straits. Um, I actually grew up on mainland um, Australia, though, in a, a small sugar town um, called Babinda. Um, my current role is the CEO of Queensland Indigenous Family Violence Legal Service, but I'm also the co-chair on the National Family Violence Prevention and Legal Services Forum. And I'm calling you from um, beautiful Cairns today, so I just would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land where I'm calling you from here today, the Gimoy, Wallabara, Yudinji and Irukandji people. Thank you for that, Winetta. So many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women were excluded from the recent National Women's, Women's Summit. In fact, the National Family Violence Prevention and Legal Services Forum was not initially invited. This was only rectified after a public campaign. What message did this send to you? 
Yeah, well, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. You know, our First Nations women, violence against them is a national crisis. Um, you know, they experience family violence at an alarming and vastly disproportionate rate that continues to rise. Um, and I think by not having the Family Violence Prevention Legal Services, the national forum um, at the table, where we actually had to fight to get a representation at the table, um, it just speaks very clear that, um, you know, First Nations women and, and the national crisis that is happening, is, is it really a concern or an issue for our government? Um, we're the voice of the victim. We advocate, we work at that grassroots level, mm-hmm. advocating for our clients. And so we hear their stories. We hear, you know, the, the, the situations and, and the, the social issues that they're currently facing in community and where they're advocating on their behalf. For me, um, it can be frustrating um, when we're trying to uh, get a place at some of these tables. Mm. Um, People might look at it for various other reasons, but we're there on behalf of the victims and our First Nations women. Thank you for that, Winata. Cheryl Axelby, co-chair of Change the Record, has drawn attention to the fact that And I quote, uh, the government withdrew dedicated funding from the Family Violence Prevention and Legal Services National Peak Body and only allocated a quarter of the funding these services need to meet demand in the 2021 budget. Could you talk us through the funding and resources needed to support Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and families? So we've got 14 Family Violence Prevention Legal Services nationally throughout Australia. Um, and each of those services then have to outreach to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. So, for example, here in Queensland, we've got offices in um, Cairns, Rockhampton, Mount Isa, Brisbane and Townsville. And we've also established just recently offices in Bamiga and on, the, on Thursday Island. Mm-hmm. And we outreach to over 80 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. So you can imagine that the, the breadth of the area that we have to cover Um, is quite extensive and so we have limited resources to do that and and capacity to do that as well because it's the travel um, pressure on our staff but then also servicing those clients and in those communities because we not only do uh, legal advice we actually do casework and representation so it's actually really working with the client taking them through that journey through court and that takes time and it takes resources and uh, enabling our staff to be out there in community and, and, and really supporting those community members. Um, and then in the past, you know, FE Pillars have reported that up to 30% of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women in contact with their service are turned away due to lack of resources and capacity issues. We know Australia is a big country, and even for the likes of here in Queensland, to give you a bit of an idea, we service right up to, as I mentioned to you, that's the Torres Strait Island as well. So that's the mm-hmm. outer islands, right down to Brisbane. We cover the East Coast and then we um, also cover the Gulf region um, and through Rockhampton. The only area patch that we don't cover, which is our sister FVPLS service, is um, around the southeast Queensland. And so we've got our other services like in WA who cover all of all of the, you know, the, the state there from right up to um, the, the broom, that area, right down even further up north, down to WA. We, we cover such a big area um, in the Northern Territory. 
South Australia and Victoria. And so we, we, needed, we need to be adequately resourced to, to, um, to meet the demand that's out there in community. And um, our core funding covers service delivery, but we don't get a dedicated allocation of funds for early intervention and prevention. We've just got to uh, absorb that in the bucket that we have. But yeah, it's 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 being aware of that that the funding that we get, we've got to we've got to cover that to meet travelling, accommodation, staffing, um, actually doing the legal work mm-hmm. and doing early intervention prevention, all out of that one bucket of money. Yeah, I imagine it would be incredibly difficult to continue that high quality of work when when like you said, the the budget is just stretched so so thin. That's true. And even some of our services have a case management model or a social wellbeing arm mm. to just the legal work that they provide as well because we see that when clients present to us, they may come with a legal matter, but it's the non-legal matter or the issue that they have that needs addressing first. And so, again, that's where the FE pillars have identified to meet that gap and really work better with supporting our clients and meeting those needs. And then with that, if we can support them through their non-legal need, we'll get a better legal outcome, they're more engaged. Um, and that's what else, that's another addition that we bring to, to servicing the client and really having an understanding of working with our client group and what works best. So the current edition of the Women's Safety Plan is up for renewal in 2022. The current iteration of the, this plan astutely mentioned that dispossession, high rates of incarceration, child removal and systemic racism are all contributing factors to the violence um, against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. It also stated the need for, and I quote, community-led and co-designed delivery of services. Has this current safety plan changed anything for First Nations women and has there actually been any progress? Um, if I can say, if those who attended the national summit um, and perhaps heard some of the other uh, media coverage, coverage around it, they would have heard from um, academics, they would have heard from services um, and organisations saying that nothing has changed. Um, if, uh, if anything, it's actually gotten worse. Mm. Um, and as I mentioned at the start, it's, it's a national crisis you know, our, our First Nations women, they're 30, 32 times more likely to be hospitalised due to family violence. They're 10 times more likely to die due to assault and 45 times more likely to be victims of violence. Um, we've also got a, a, a national closing the gap agreement and our national forum fought hard to get the family violence target, which is target 13, which says by 2031, the rate of all forms of family violence and abuse against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women, children, women and children is reduced at least by 50%. And so I, it's actually gotten worse. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, housing is another issue that we're seeing. There's overcrowding in housing, um, which then can lead to uh, family violence in the house. We're also seeing and hearing reports of uh, misidentification where the victim is actually being misidentified as the aggressor or the perpetrator. And so we're seeing training of um, police services being needed as well. Um, so there's all these um, 
other factors that are coming into play now and it's just really uh, what we're saying is that recommendations are out there. Um, people are raising these issues and the concerns. We just need government to really act upon these, um, what, what they're hearing from community and from the voices of, you know, those who have lived it, also from providers who are working um, with these client groups and um, really take some change and, and act upon it. Yeah, there seems to be a real disconnect between what is being said and what is being written down as opposed to what's been actually done. So the COVID outbreak in towns like Wilcannia has exacerbated the problem that Aboriginal communities face, and that's the ongoing harm caused by the systems and institutions in this country. In uh, the me recent media release, uh, you said that um, this means that women will not achieve a safety and equality for First Nations women unless uh, they are front and centre of the design and implementation of the solutions. What would a dedicated national plan that is written for and by First Nations women look like to you? Well, it's really, it's a plan that has to have the voice of First Nations women firsthand. As I mentioned before, they're the ones who have lived through this. They're the experts. So we really need for them to be at the table and for their voices to be heard. Um, and I think you need to have the right expertise as well. Like our national forum, as I mentioned, had to fight to get a seat at the national summit. And, so we, and we work firsthand with, you know, women that are facing domestic and family violence, our First Nation women. So you've got to have the right expertise at the table as well. Um, and I think it's about them coming together and I think it's more around really listening to them and then taking that on board and then um, really enacting some of those recommendations. Because what I'm hearing and what others have said is that these recommendations aren't new. These are things that have been said time and time again. It's just about needing them to be acted upon for that change to take effect. And I do realise, sorry, that there's many layers, you know, to affecting change. I do understand that. Um, you know, it's about dealing with the housing issue, dealing with, um, you know, employment issues, all these social determinants that can impact domestic and family violence. But again, it's about getting those experts on board, working together. They know what's needed. They know um, the, the shortfalls and, and the recommendations that are needed. And it's about having all of the right players together and the voices of the communities to bring the change and, you know, for it to be led in the right direction. Before we leave today, Winetta, I was just wondering if there was anything else that you wanted to say or add to the discussion that we've had today about not only the recent Women's Summit, but the national plan and, and I guess going forward, um, the work that can be done with and for by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. Yeah, I suppose the only thing that obviously following uh, the summit, um, a lot of people have, you know, mentioned that the habits are talk first. So uh, where to from here? It'll be really interesting what happens. I know there was an announcement by Minister Rustin around having um, some type of a dedicated national plan for First Nations, but it'll be interesting to see what that will be. Is it an actual standalone plan or is it a framework within the, the new plan going forward? 
I suppose there's just a bit of watch this space and, you know, um, see where it goes from here. But in saying that, I know that our National Family Violence Prevention Legal Services will be continuing to, to fight that good fight for our, you know, First Nation people, women and children who are, are facing, you know, the, the adverse effects of domestic and family violence and sexual assault in community with limited resources, with limited um, services and communities and supports, and, you know, to, to try to help them in whatever way that we can. Um, we're very active in that space, and I know we will continue to do that work. Thank you so much, Winetta. Like you said, I think everyone will be keeping a very close eye on on, on the government, what they plan to do in the next few months and over the coming year as the current safety plan comes to an end. Um, yeah. And I know that we'd love to have you back on 3CR um, later down the track to, to discuss any new updates. But thank you so much for joining us today on 3CR, Winetta. No, thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you. Winetta Jewis there from the National Family Violence Prevention and Legal Services Forum. If you'd like to learn more about the organisation and the work they do, please go to www.nationalfvpls.org. Finally, if anything that was discussed in our interview caused you any distress, please contact 1-800-RESPECT or Lifeline on 131114. 20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcasts. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. A lot of the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app or listen live each Monday at midday. We're now going to go to another track. This song is called One by One and it's by Ancestress. Um, Ancestress or Teal Watson is a Biri Gubba and Kungalu Gangalu Mari artist, musician, poet and actress. Um, there is a bit of a content warning. It does refer to violence and genocide. Um, I think it's really important to state that uh, Ancestress says that this song is in memory of the many members of, of um, our communities and nations that were killed through the continuous process of colonialism in the making up of Australia and the continuation of its violence. They 
killed us one by one, they killed us two by two, they shot us down with guns, and they poisoned the food, they spread the smallpox long, spread the smallpox wide before they came to Queensland, nine out of ten had died, put it out again, taking five out of ten, that left us five percent, oh what a high descent. But they carry their flags, carry their flags, and it's an honor, such an honor, just to fly that flag. They killed us man by man, they killed us clan by clan, they gave us new demands, took away our lands. Stole my talk and they have changed my walk And what belongs to us is still sold and bought Still feed me poison food Give a place for the rude They strip necessity nude So they can build an excuse But they carry their flags Carry their flags And it's an honor, such an honor Just to fly that flag Da-da-da-dum, da-dum, da-da-da-dum This has always been home and still the stories we keep reflect the truth we've known But they kill us today, still take our kids away Yeah, they carry our war just in a different way But they carry their flags, carry their flags And it's an honor, an honor just to fly that flag So playing there in the background is uh, the song One by One by Ancestress and actually features vocals um, by Dr. Lou Bennett. Such a powerful song. Um, All right. Well, we've got a very exciting uh, interview uh, coming up now with uh, Dr. Julie Hennigan. Dr. Julie Hennigan is a senior research fellow at the Burnett Institute, uh, specialising in global adolescent and women's health. She explores the social and environmental uh, determinants of health and the design and evaluation of complex social interventions. Dr. Hennigan leads multiple research programs on menstrual health across high, middle and low income country settings. Uh, And she joins us to speak to us uh, about an article she co-wrote titled Supporting Menstrual Health in Australia uh, Means More Than Just Throwing Pads at the Problem, uh, which discusses how the Victorian and South Australian governments are now providing free pads and tampons in government schools uh, and New South Wales is not far behind joining them in the pilot program. 
However, the article dives deep into lengthy policy neglect and exactly what needs to be done to support menstrual health in Australia. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Julie. Oh, thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Um, Just to start off focusing on your recent article, you talk about some of the programs uh, being implemented to make sanitary products more available. And I just wanted to ask, why has menstrual health uh, entered the discourse uh, here in Australia in terms of this new program? And what exactly are these new initiatives being implemented in states to assist women's menstrual health? Yeah, so we're finally talking about periods, which is fantastic. There's been, I think, incredible momentum that this is a topic that's really important. And I don't think there's a single reason why we're starting to see uh, this emphasis in many places. You know, there's been innovations in the menstrual product space, things like reusable menstrual underwear. We're seeing menstrual product companies, you know, change some of the approach in their advertising and and more um, clearly acknowledge, you know, menstruation, not just trying to keep it secret. Mm. You know, we're reading about the U.S. women's soccer team paying attention to their menstrual cycle and training. Um, But we're also seeing, you know, this recognition that many people don't have what they need for menstrual health and fantastic community organizations who have been raising awareness around this and leading campaigns around the taxes placed on essential period products. I think in response, we've we've got this recognition that, oh my goodness, millions of Australians are menstruating and and maybe they need some support around that. Um, so we've seen, as you said, states like Victoria and South Australia um, providing free pads and tampons in schools and, and New South Wales trialling um, approaches to this. And then... Um, I think in in separate efforts, we've seen some more funding and support for disorders like endometriosis, which is all really exciting new energy focused on supporting different aspects of menstrual health. Definitely. And I love your point that, you know, there's been this sudden realisation that half the population have a menstruation cycle, um, which is great. Um, And I wanted to get into it. So I'm not sure if many listeners might actually know exactly what uh, menstrual health is or means. Um, Can you explain what what is menstrual health and how should we go about achieving it? Yeah, so it is a bit of a new term. We actually um, formalized a definition for, for menstrual health this year, but Menstrual health means having a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being in relation to the menstrual cycle. Uh, And there are a lot of different menstrual health needs that play into this. So it's not just access to products. Uh, For menstrual health, we definitely need something to to bleed on. Absolutely, we need enough uh, comfortable products to, to manage our periods. We also need supportive spaces to change products, to wash and care for the body. And that can be challenging, um, you know, in maybe in school environments or in different um, populations where, where those spaces aren't available or aren't easily accessible. Uh, menstrual health also requires having knowledge about the menstrual cycle and understanding what it is that's happening to you, particularly in adolescence when this is something that's new and you really might need you know, more access to support to understand what's going on with your body and what you can be doing um, to manage your menstrual health. Yeah, def- uh, when we talk, yeah, and when we talk about menstrual health, we're also talking about the harmful effects that the stigma and shame surrounding menstruation carry. 
Uh, and so, you know, this emphasis to hide menstruation means that people don't ask for help, that they're embarrassed to, to ask for a pad or to go to the toilet at school and change their, their absorbent, which is, which is harmful as well. And then what might be more obvious, which is getting timely care and support for menstrual discomforts and disorders. So a lot of different considerations, but all relevant to uh, having a positive menstrual experience or, or having menstrual health. Yeah, for sure. Um, And I think that was also such a great point in terms of, you know, uh, lessening the stigma surrounding menstrual health and uh, having a period. um, And especially when you're that age, I think it's super important. Um, And I guess in your line of research, uh, I'm not sure if you've uh, come across any sort of examples of some of the benefits of um, I guess, having good programs that uh, implement uh, uh, things that, I guess, support menstrual health and maybe the things that, you know, the good things that come out of that and maybe some of the consequences that may happen if menstrual health isn't supported? Yeah, so programs to support menstrual health are are quite new, uh, at least at, at a large scale or, or policies like they're implementing in Victoria and and South Australia, and we really don't have a lot of research on the effects that these programs can have. And I think that's something that we need a lot more of so that we can sustain them over the long term. We know that for things like menstrual disorders and pain, there are a lot of impacts on people's engagement at school or work and their personal relationships. Um, But when it comes to things like comprehensive menstrual education, ensuring access to to period products and to supportive spaces. We have anecdotal reports about the impacts of these unmet needs, about not having enough pads, about you know the stress surrounding menstruation, but it really is a gap in quantifying what these consequences are for you know young people who are menstruating or other groups uh, who are struggling to get access to what they need in relation to menstruation. Uh, and so we really do need more research on what this means for their mental health, for their for their education and their employment and their, their comfort. Yeah. And I wanted to bring it back to just going through exactly what's happening here in Australia. So with the free pads and tampons being uh, distributed in government schools um, in Victoria and South Australia, um, there's obviously in the article you outlined some of, you know, this is really great, like free pads and tampons, that's really great. But there's obviously a few things that are missing in terms of fulfilling um, an effective, uh, I guess, program to support uh, menstrual health. Do you want to go through some of the things that may um, actually uh, be of benefit to adding to programs like this? Yeah, so I think we can't have decades of neglect of the topic and then throw throw some free pads at it and and expect Mm. that this is a challenge that's going to go away. I think we really need to think about the full range of menstrual health needs and take quite a holistic approach to supporting menstrual health. Um, I also think we need to recognize that we're starting these you know, free pad distribution programs in a time where there is really rapid uptake of reusable alternatives like reusable menstrual underwear and menstrual cups. You know, these technologies that have in some ways been around for a while, but a lot more people are, you know, making, wanting to make more environmental choices or seeing these as a, as an option that are often cheaper over the long term. And yet our policies that are being introduced in schools are focused only on disposable products and are probably missing the opportunity to support, um, 
you know, menstruators to take up these options. So changes to things like the toilet cubicle so that you could actually empty or rinse a menstrual cup is something that we're not talking about in, you know, efforts to support menstrual health. They're, they're maybe less marketable and, oh, we're going to go in and we're going to provide free pads. But I think we do need to take that really holistic view of menstrual health and saying, well, yes, does someone have a product, but do they also have a supportive space that they can choose the product that they want, that they can change it and manage it? Do they have the education that they need, which I think, you know, it's sort of easy to say, oh, we've provided you know, some puberty education, but is that content really um, covering the menstrual cycle in a way that's that's comprehensive and that's going to you know, destigmatize the topic and to encourage young people to seek support and, and, and sort of openly discuss the topic when they need to. Um, and I think to support all of that, we need this more detailed understanding of menstrual needs in Australia and the impacts of these various efforts, various efforts, and, you know, bring these different threads together. If we're introducing programs to help support, you know, people with menstrual disorders, then we need to, to connect that with efforts to provide products and, and to ensure that our spaces and physical spaces are supportive. So I think it's about bringing these different efforts together and really investing in making sure that we're comprehensively supporting menstrual health. Yeah, definitely. And um, especially with, yeah, these, I guess, new products that are sustainable in the menstrual cups um, and the reusable period undies, um, kind of acknowledging the fact that, yeah, these are options as well. Um, and I guess just for a final question, um, in terms of if people, if you had any good takes on like finding out more about menstrual health or uh, reading more about research, did you have any places where people might be able to go to learn some things about menstrual health uh, or even follow yourself? Um, yeah, well, we've written this article in the conversation, and I think there's increasing, um, you know, information online. The the South Australian Commissioner for Young People released a report um, just a couple of months ago about some work she'd done around menstrual health challenges among young people. So that'd be another good place, I think, for readers to start to get a. a um, a sense of this topic. I think there's more and more online resources around menstrual health or sites supporting, you know, people who are wanting to open or understand the, the breadth of different menstrual products as well that are available to them. Uh, and of course, people can um, you know, follow me on Twitter or, or, you know, other academics that are working in this space. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I, yeah, it's, bring a lot of joy to my, uh, I guess, to me in terms of seeing so many people talking about women's health and menstrual health, particularly over the last couple of years. I feel like it's really gaining some traction, which is really exciting. It's fantastic. And it's something we need to keep paying attention to because uh, it's not going away and it's you know been neglected for a really long time. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us, Julie. You're welcome. That was Julie, Dr. Julie Hennigan, um, a research fellow uh, specializing in women's and menstrual health. Um, if you wanted to follow Julie on Twitter, uh, her Twitter handle is at Julie underscore Hennigan, H-E-N-N-E-G-O-N. And we'll pop a few of those uh, links to some of those research articles in the show notes. It's time to speak up, speak out, and speak loud. 
From an idea born on a park bench outside Liberal Party headquarters, where hundreds of women told their stories of sexual violence, introducing Feminist Fridays. Join our open speaking circle to tell your story any way you want. A poem, a speech, or a dance. You can even yell it out in the direction of Parliament House because that's where we'll be, on the steps. Feminist Fridays, starting Friday the 30th of April at 12pm. Join us. It's time to unite, heal and take back our power. Feminist Fridays isn't just a protest. We are a non-hierarchical collective ready to destroy the patriarchy, starting with your voice. This event is taking place on stolen Wurundjeri land and voices of First Nations people are prioritised. Hosted by Loud, Angry and Not Sorry. A 3CR supporter. You're back on 3CR Community Radio. This is Tuesday Breakfast. Uh, We're going to go to a track now. And I think what a better way to celebrate kind of the start of the week with uh, a new Lil Nas album. Very exciting. (laughs) I was really excited. (laughs) Um, But we're going to play a track off that. Um, It's called That's What I Want. Need a boy who can cuddle with me all night. Give me one, let me long, be my sunlight. Tell me lies, we can argue, we can fight. Yeah, we did it before, but we'll do it tonight. Yeah, that fro black boy with the gold teeth. Your dark skin looking at me like you know me. I wonder if you got the G or the B. Let me find out to see you coming over to me. Times, but I got nothing but love on my mind. I need a baby with lime in my prime. Need an adversary to my down and weary. Like, tell me that's life when I'm stressing at night. Be like, you'll be okay and everything's alright. Uh, let me in nothing cause I'm not wanting anything. But you're loving your body and a little bit of your brain. away but Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. Queer Ways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, 
into a permanent interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queer Ways, a 3CR supporter. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. All right, well, um, next up on the show we have... Uh, Kate Robinson and Maria Bertmarunga, who are the hosts of a brand new podcast called Being Biracial, um, which is about exploring and are navigating the world as a biracial person. Welcome to the show, Kate and Maria. Hello. How are we this morning? Awake. I'm so glad. <laughs> I know this is quite early. Um, but very glad to have you on the show. So let's start with maybe if one of you, let's start with Maria, could tell us a little bit about how this concept came about. Well, I love telling the story and Kate hates it. I can feel her eye rolling through the phone. Um, I'm absolutely rolling my eyes. Yeah, I knew it. <laughs> um, Kate and I lived together for a while um, in Footscray. It was actually the first house that I lived in in the West. And... Um, I didn't realise for a really, really long time that she was biracial because she's really white passing. And I am quite brown, so it's quite hard to determine that I'm biracial as well. And about 18 months into our friendship, we weren't living together, we were just, you know, in the same friendship circles, we realised that we were both biracial. And then once we realised this little common thread between us, we kind of couldn't stop talking about it. Yeah, and so Maria, you're half Maori, half white, is that right? Yeah. yeah. What has your experience been like sort of taking up both those spaces? I think for a long time I only occupied the space of being white um, because of what has happened with my parents. Um, I was predominantly raised by my mum, who is a lovely little white lady, <laughs> and um I spent a lot of my childhood and my teen years really trying to fit in and trying to contort myself into being white, being as close to white as I could be. So when I went to uni, I was surrounded by a whole bunch of different people that I'd never been surrounded by before. Um, and I had all of these, you know, these courses available to me and I decided to take the Māori papers. And that is kind of when I started really connecting with my Māori side of me, um, you know, identifying with so many of the values that I was taught, being taught at uni, 
um, you know, it, it really put a lot of context for my life into place. Like, it was really, really beautiful when I was at uni. I was like, oh, my gosh, I am Māori. I can take up the space, and it's okay. And, yeah, since then, it's just kind of taken off. I'm wow. Now. Yeah. And, Kate, what has that been like for you? Um, what's your mix? So, I am Iranian-Australian, and... It's interesting because similar to Maria, like, I, I, I guess mixes are so different and that's part of the story as well is that, you know, realistically, two people who have our mixes shouldn't have so much in common, shouldn't have so much experience. Yeah. <laughs> Especially because, like, as Maria says, like, she's super brown, I'm super white. Um, but... There is, there is so much commonality. Um, and for me as well, like I grew up in country Victoria and I think because of that, I had a really strong sense that my family was quite different. Like I was thinking about it the other day and <laughs> the only other person from another country in a small country town um, was Danish. And um, it's funny because I remember as a kid thinking about that and being like, oh, my God, yes, their family is exactly the same as our family. <laughs> and now I'm thinking about it, I'm like, no, <laughs> nothing in common between the Persian Australian family and the Danish family. Um, but similarly to Maria, like, I think university is such a place of trying to explore your identity. Um, and I also went on a bit of a journey while I was studying and I did um, some Farsi classes as well. Um, but it was funny because I think also I felt a bit awkward about it. Like I never took Persian history. I never took... Um, any of those kinds of subjects. And, and some of my friends, my, like, white friends did. I think the reason I didn't do it is because I felt embarrassed. Like, mm -hmm. why did I have to have studied it at uni? Like, I should just know mm. or something. Um, which is really silly. But, or, or for example, uh, they would have, like, Persian New Year celebrations, which is, like, in March we kind of have our version of a spring festival, for example, and they would host them at the um, kind of like Middle Eastern school um, mm. at my uni, and I would feel a bit awkward going to those because like I wasn't taking the classes, and a bunch of the other white kids would be like talking to me about how they went to the Persian New Year celebrations, and I would like be specifically opting out because that made me feel embarrassed or uncomfortable, which is, like, I'm, I'm even sad for, like, baby 20-year-old Kate. Like, who's your year girl? Like, what were you so worried about? I know. It's, it sounds like this weird, like, almost imposter syndrome of your own culture. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> that That's definitely a difficult thing to navigate. And um, just the way, I guess, you guys found commonality in your experiences from different cultural mixes did you kind of find common threads in the guests that you interviewed maybe we'll start with maria oh my gosh did we what like i like when <laughs> kate and i embarked on this project we were like oh maybe maybe we'll find some 
stuff that is in common. Maybe it will be really different. Like we were, we didn't really know what to expect. And then when we started interviewing people, it was like, it was outrageous. Just all of the common threads throughout. There's lots of people that went on a journey at university and then have had to, you know, use like education in order to connect with their culture. There's lots of people that have gone back to, you know, quote unquote, the motherland and been full of hope or only to be rejected. There's so many common threads between us all. Not saying that that has happened to me, but, you know, I haven't gone back to my motherland. But, um, you know, we've, we found so many common threads and so many points of difference as well. It has been so beautiful to interview all of these people. I think we're up to 20 at the moment, Kate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think also, like, there's something about how people feel in their heart that is so sweet. Because I think... <laughs> and it sounds so silly. But I think, like, there's just such a sense every time we chat to someone, um, this overwhelming feeling of relief, in a way. Or mm. people are so curious about what other guests have said... Um, people are so, other biracial people are also so desperate to hear these stories and to make these connections because I think there is a bit of a sense that, um, you know, people might have been the only biracial person that they knew other than their siblings or they might have only had these conversations with a few really close friends and so that we get like a little peek into these conversations so so special yeah i can imagine does it do you have sort of a new outlook on your own identities after doing this podcast and hearing so many other stories kate can i get it's going to take me years of therapy to be able to unpack that (laughs) (laughs) or did the podcast kind of help you make a start Absolutely, I'm just taking the piss. Um, no, nah, I, I mean, I think it literally it's going to take me years to process the stuff that um, we've been talking about. Um, but I have never felt like so much myself, which is so nice. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like it, it's like kind of like I've been given permission that if this is what we're all feeling, like screw it. Um, I'm just going to embrace exactly what I want to embrace. And um, if that means, um, like, having more uncomfortable conversations with people who don't see me as Persian or calling out more racism because I just can't be bothered. And I've honestly felt awkward for a lot of my life um, because I'm so white passing. Like, who, who am I to be able to speak up about racism so like there's little things that like that that it's changed the way that I think what about you Maria has it changed for you I I think even since we started working on this project which we're about a year deep now um Mm. I think that I've changed since we started doing this project I think the, the Maria who who embarked on this project with Kate was like bright-eyed and naive and, and thought a whole bunch of different things and said a whole bunch of silly things as well, uh, which I which have been revealed to me during the course of these, <laughs> things, these interviews. <laughs> but but um, the, I think, yeah, the, the process is really helping me, you know, step into 
how I want to be expressing myself and how I am, you know, bringing and advocating for myself as a Māori woman and for um, Māori people, you know, all across Australia, like the diaspora of, of Māori people. Um, so I've, I'm feeling, yes, same as Kate, needs some, needs some therapy, got to be in therapy for a while, but at the same time, having all of these conversations with people where all of these common things have been coming up that have been rattling around in my head for 30 years um, makes me feel seen and makes me feel heard. And if we can make anybody else feel like that, then we've done what we came to do and that makes me really, really happy. Well, exactly. Like, kids, biracial kids now will grow up having this podcast um, which I'm assuming is something neither of you had growing up. Um, so it's, I feel like it's going to make a massive difference to people's identities and it's going to make it easier, I imagine, for people to find commonality and common experiences with other biracial people as well. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, I think some of the... And like we went looking for biracial content and I think... Part of what was missing and kind of the gap that we're trying to fill is the fact that there's so much um, content that is set in America or... Well, not so much, but there is some (laughs) biracial content. Um, If you're American or if you're from the UK, um, but there isn't that much that's focused on Australia. And to be perfectly honest, like the majority of my friends are in like, multiracial relationships, and if all of those people have children, um, what do you think the next generation is going to look like? Exactly. It's really important. They're all going to be put to sleep at night listening to being biracial. (laughs) Oh, my God. Speaking of, who else has been listening to the podcast like a lullaby? (laughs) Is it Maria, personally? (laughs) No. Maria's mum. <laughs> oh my gosh, my mum sent me a message. Um, I was I wasn't sure if she was going to listen to it. Um, not because she doesn't like support me in literally everything that I do and loves me so much, but because um, she, you know, I talk about some things that have happened in our family that um, are upsetting to her. So I wasn't sure if she was going to listen to it, and she sent me this message after she'd listened to the first episode, and she said, "I'm just going to put it on so that I can hear your voice and hear your laugh." in my house because Stop we it. haven't been we haven't been together in a long long time so oh that warms my heart I know. isn't it so cute no yeah your mum is a sweet angel i know i love her so much all right unfortunately guys that's all we have time for this morning um if anyone wants to follow the um, podcast it's being biracial podcast on instagram and listen to it on spotify the first two episodes are out And it is absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for joining us, Kate and Maria. Thank you, Connie. Thank you so much. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao, and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, 
Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. It's time to speak up, speak out and speak loud. From an idea born on a park bench outside Liberal Party headquarters where hundreds of women told their stories of sexual violence. Introducing Feminist Fridays. Join our open speaking circle to tell your story any way you want. A poem, a speech or a dance. You can even yell it out in the direction of Parliament House because that's where we'll be. On the steps. Feminist Fridays, starting Friday the 30th of April at 12pm. Join us. It's time to unite, heal and take back our power. Feminist Fridays isn't just a protest. We are a non-hierarchical collective ready to destroy the patriarchy, starting with your voice. This event is taking place on stolen Wurundjeri land and voices of First Nations people are prioritised. Hosted by Loud, Angry and Not Sorry. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast. This week, a group of organisations for bisexual people across Australia and New Zealand are putting on their first conference called Stand By Us. This conference includes online events during a week-long celebration for Bi Plus Visibility Day, which is September 23rd each year and is this uh, Thursday. Sally Goldner of the fabulous Out of the Pan joins us today to chat to us about the conference and its importance during Bisexuality Awareness Week. Welcome to the show, Sally. Good to be with you. Um, First of all, it's just amazing that we have such a week and even just like a day to celebrate being bi. I I realised I was bi nearly 20 years ago and I don't think I could have imagined as a kid having such a celebration and acceptance of who I am despite it being pretty recent history. Look, I'm much much the same. I didn't come out as bi until I was 32, so where where are we? That was, um, well, 25 years ago. And mm. there was just so little visibility, or busy by Lati, to use a pun because we have to. And <laughs> and often, you know, we were, you know, so much talk was gay and lesbian and there wasn't much talk of anything else. And unfortunately, there was negativity from both the broader community for anything that was in inverted inverted commas not heterosexual and um, often sadly at times from outright negativity from elements of gay and lesbian but it is I honestly believe shifting steadily now and the fact that this is I do have to correct you it's our second stand by us conference um, which is really awesome and it's just I have to say last year it was just I finally felt rock solid in my bi plus identity, my own terms being bi bi slash pan, and I just I have we haven't looked back since, and you know we had we obviously want to do it again. Yeah, and it's just it. Can you tell us about this conference and so what's happening this week? So we have a series of online, um, as we have to at the moment, um, discussions, and this came out of last year when you know more of Australia was in lockdown, feeling isolated. A few of us. Um, just to give the backstory, just started checking in with each other, saying, you know, how's it going for the BiPlus community? And we catch up on Zoom once every couple of weeks um, with people pretty much in 
are all states and territories. And then people say, well, Celebrate Buy Day was approaching. Oh, well, you're going to do something online. Let's make sure it's at a different time to, to yours, blah, blah, blah. And then we said, well, why not make it bigger? And so that's really how the first one came about. Last year, it went for a whole week. This year, we probably overextended ourselves a bit. And <laughs> let's be honest, we are, um, particularly, of course, in three, part, three states and territories facing you know, lockdown, fatigue and all that sort of thing. So we came back to four days this year, but it's still an awesome range of events. It's, um, you know, first things first, um, the opening plenary on Thursday is a First Nations discussion, which includes our awesome um, acting LGBTIQ commissioner here in Victoria, Todd Fernando. And then there's a whole range of, you know, thoughtful advocacy discussions and um, intersectionality discussions such as bi and polyamory, um, bi-bi binary um, for those who are bi and non-binary and want to be better allies as well. There's fun discussions or relaxed discussions, if you like, like um, bi and pet, bi and gaming. Um, and then there's um, online events such as Biconic and the um, and Bi Music and Musings, just to name a couple. So it's a good range of of, of all things um, by at the centre of the intersection um, and all sorts of fun things to go with it. Yeah, it, it's interesting that you um, mentioned that it was born out of last year's lockdown um, because I was just thinking like how important it is, like first of all, just to have those communities, mm. but especially at this point in time in this moment where we're all sort of um, disconnected from each other physically and unable to check in on each other. And so what does it mean to you right now in this moment when it's so hard for, like, you know, people to find community in lockdown to be able to come together for ourselves in this way and in such a complicated, fun way to do it in all sorts of, you know, as you said, like all sorts of aspects of the experience of being bi? I think, well, I think you've just, you know, you've hit it right on the head there, Easy, but it does give us that sense of connection which we all need and, I'm, you know, we all need our, we'll say our, you know, our tribes and our bubbles. There's nothing wrong with having a bubble because we need a safe space from which to start. And then you go, you know, whether it's online or when we can in person go out into the world, so to speak. And I think um, when you do have that sense of connection, it is huge and we need it at the moment. And, um, you know, look, if there have been in inverted commas, good things that have come out of the last 18 months. We have learnt how to use the, the mighty online platforms like Zoom, where a lot of our um, things will happen. But I think the other thing is, um, you know, we have become a little more connected in that way. I remember last year after the pandemic broke and so many things that you just rely on for relaxation and joy were lost. The first thing, good thing that happened was hearing about um, a bi discussion group that was based in New York and it was 7 o'clock New York time which was a, a civilised hour of 9 o'clock Australian Eastern and um, you know, we, I joined in and a couple of other Australians and there were people from US, Canada, Australia, Brazil and I think one other country and you know, we had people join in from beyond the uh, lands of this continent last year as well from other countries and actually just before I came on, took an email from someone who's wanting to review the First Nations session who's from a university in America, so we're already uh, international. And I just think that when you have faced isolation as 
um, groups in the rainbow communities have at times to start, to get that sense of connection. It's just like a, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a clean energy charge and it's really, really needed. That's such a beautiful way of describing it. Like uh, I'm looking forward to attending some of the events myself and, uh, you know, this is the first time I'm attending the conference and looking forward to meeting people in this way. Um, and it's like, you know, I think it's particularly important to have that um, especially in a sphere where a lot of people who aren't out yet also don't have the means to meet people physically or be able to feel safe or comfortable in being able to talk about who they are. Yeah, look, it is very, very necessary. And there's a couple of thoughts that come to mind there. First of all, it is still a thrill for me to um, meet a fellow bi-traveller and the fact that you um, disclose what you've done in, in our discussion is still just a a bonus for me as someone who's felt that isolation in terms of bi plus for a long time. But I think the other thing that we need to sometimes remember is whilst of course everyone's individual bit and there's lot but there's there are sort of in one sense ways um, a way we could put classify the bi plus community into two broad groups. Those who are connected to queer slash rainbow communities, but I think where the connection can come in is for those bi people who are in what appears to be a, I'll say in inverted commas, different gender or bigger inverted commas, heterosexual relationship, but where one or both are bi and they're in the suburbs, the regions, the country, wherever. And they can often feel very isolated as well. And I do think maybe get forgotten a bit. So there's a huge sense of connection for them and, you know, as, as much as there is for everyone. And I think that, therefore, this whole thing really does bring us together. And just um, it was huge last year. On the first session, we had people messaging each other in the chat saying, I'm in tears and this is so awesome. And um, it just went on from there. And people who had been down in the longer term because of feeling isolated or obviously with the difficulties of last year, you, could, you know, just like the energy level went through to a sort of spinal tap 11 from from just after turning the amplifier on, so to speak. <laughs> it was really, really, really big. And, you know, sort of gear where, you know, I can feel myself gearing up again um, for this week. That's just so wonderful. Um, we're going to put a link in the show notes to the conference. It's still yep. not too late to join in. Um, the um, address is standbyus.com. Um all events are free and they're listed in the time zone of their host. Um, what day is the conference starting? So, yep, the conference starts this Thursday, the 23rd of September. Um, at and The first um, event is the First Nations keynote at 10am Australian Eastern Time. And, yep, there's um, all three um, Australian time zones are listed for each event. And you just, if you need to book, you just click on where it says event page or tickets and um, particularly tickets. And most things are set up in Eventbrite and just book. And there's just um, mountains of um, stuff and you can go to as many or as little events as you want. But it's a pretty um, solid program for um, you know, the four days, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday with um, the last event of the, the main sort of grouping. There's a wrap up at six. PM Australian Eastern. However, um, the usual um, by Victoria um, by Alliance Victoria uh, monthly discussion group, which is probably worth a mention, which happens um, on the fourth Tuesday of the month anyway, is sort of the the late event, um, the late sort of um, postscript, um, which is a good thing because sometimes people 
you know, that's come down a bit, well, you can reconnect there and then gradually sort of, um, you know, sort of um, re- relive everything, and that's next Tuesday as well. But, yeah, most from Thursday through Sunday. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Sally. Um, you can also listen to Sally on Out of the Pan on Sundays from 12pm to 1pm right here on 3CR. Thanks so much for joining us, Sally. Thanks, Evie, and thanks to you and also in your face at um, 4 o'clock Fridays who um, have supported um, the Stand Bias Conference and, well, um, an airwaves by five for you. Thanks. All right, that brings us to the end of a huge show, as always. Um, just to quickly run through, Fong interviewed Juanetta Dewis, who's the co-chair of the National Family Violence Prevention and Legal Services Forum, about the recent Women's Summit um, and exactly what this means for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. Um, I had the pleasure of talking to Dr. Julie Hennigan about menstrual health. I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Kate and Maria about their Being Biracial podcast. And just then you heard me talking to Sally Goldner uh, about Stand By Us, the conference, uh, a group of organisations for bisexual people across Australia. And as always, I hope everyone has a lovely Tuesday morning and rest of the week. Uh, Stay safe, uh, stay optimistic and keep it locked to 3CR. We've got uh, an amazing show of Accent of Women coming up next. Uh, So goodbye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.